everything in here. So time is going forward, as Bob always says, on our recorder. So we'll open up with prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for our day. We thank you for our time together again to look at your word. And we do pray, Lord, as we look at the heresies and falsehoods of the New Apostolic Reformation movement and the problems with post-millennialism, that you'll give us even greater clarity as to the gospel, as to what it is, and just how great it is. Not only what Christ has done, but what he's coming to do. And we pray that you give us this clarity in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see everyone here. We're going to continue on in our refutation of the New Apostolic Reformation movement. What I'm going to do is just try to get through four slides today. And we're going to be focusing on refuting post-millennialism. This first slide, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go quickly through it. I'm going to have Bob comment at the end. What Bob and I will do is kind of go through this material. And at the end, I'm going to open it up to questions and comments. So with that, let me proceed. And I want to show you where we left off last time. I took this from a website where there's a bunch of scholars internationally. They're good scholars who took the New Apostolic Reformation movement. And they just simply built six categories. And what we're going to do is simply use them as a grid to try to focus our thoughts on how to refute the New Apostolic Reformation movement. So what I want to first start is with this post-millennialism. Post-millennialism, again, is the idea that human beings bring about the kingdom through our effort and our works. And, of course, the belief here would be that we have an end-time church that is going to end mass, become a spiritually filled body to such an extent that we are going to bring, as the church, the kingdom to earth. In fact, there's really two a twofold process to this idea of post-millennialism in the New Apostolic Reformation movement. Think of it this way. The first part of it is where in the first advent of Christ, he brings his church, the seed, to basically birth. And then what the seed is going to do is over time, they are going to take over the world in all aspects, whether it's human institutions or whether it's... uh, just theologically, we'll get rid of Hinduism and Buddhism and suppress falsehoods. But the church is going to take over, and we're going to have a glorious kingdom. And that's part of dominionism. So that's part of postmillennialism. We're going to focus today on refuting that. The second part is reconstructionism. The Christians are to directly engage against forces of darkness to restore the dominion that was lost in the fall. One of the people that's teaching that today is a man named Lance Wolnow. Am I pronouncing his last name right? Does anyone know? Well, he believes that, yes, you and I, as the church, are going to create not conversion, but social transformation. And so what you see in the New Apostolic Reformation movement is they're not so concerned about conversion. You and I preach the gospel, and by the Spirit, some will believe and some don't. Um, yeah, it, it ties into that sort of idea. And I don't know if Jerry Falwell was ever involved with that, but that would be the idea of a moral majority created through uh, a restoration rather than conversion. That's something that we want to be against. You and I say, hey, there's only going to be a remnant that believe. What they're going to do is they're going to bring about a social transformation in seven areas. Let me read the seven areas. This is called their seven mountain mandate. Seven of them. There's family. We have to have the generational blessings and curses removed. So again, it's not about conversion. It's about finding the curses and getting rid of those through directly intervening 
against the demonic realm. Um, education, where there are lies about God and his creation, we have to take over that. We have to take over government. We have to take over business. We have to take over media, arts, and religion. Those are the seven areas or their seven mountain mandate. Now, how are we going to do that? Well, one way we do that is we, as Christians, can use words to create a new reality. And that's what Dutch Sheets does with his 13 decrees. Their new apostles and prophets make decrees that will change things. What I will show you later on, we're not going to get into that today, is I think that there's a crossover between the Word of Faith movement and the new apostolic reformation movement in that you and I believe that faith has an object, the person and work of Jesus Christ. In the Word of Faith movement, which I think is incorporated into the new apostolic reformation movement, faith is like a force. And the words that you use are the containers of that force that can speak things into being. And the idea, if you press them on it, they would say, well, we have the anointing, we have the authority that comes from God himself to do these things, but they equivocate on the very definition of faith. Our faith is directed into the object of the person and work of Christ. Their faith is used through their words to manipulate the reality around them. I think of Ken Copeland, who, again, the Word of Faith movement, claimed he could speak a storm out of being. I I wish I could have used that as an airline pilot. I would have done that. And I'm sorry, I'll hold off on questions just for a little while. I'll just try to get through this first slide. and I want to have Bob comment, and then I'll open it up. So that's um, that's Reconstructionism. The other idea here in Reconstructionism is that the church is going to become a super church. It's going to be a reestablished super church, not the pathetic dead church that you and I are. That's the claim. So if you believe that things are going to get worse and that we're heading towards a judgment in the 70th week of Daniel and therefore you're longing for a rapture prior to that, you're regarded by the new apostolic reformation movement as kind of a dead and pathetic church. No, they're going to become a super church. And so, yes, it's a, it's a post-millennial movement, but their post-millennialism comes from this reconstructionism. It comes from a Christian church that's so revitalized and so spirit-filled that it really rules over the world. Now, this, of course, incorporates also restorationism, which is the restoration of the office of apostle and prophet. We know from the scriptures that there are no modern-day apostles and prophets, but they will take issue with that. We'll again come to this and prove that they are wrong. The modern-day apostles and prophets do not exist who gave us the very words of God. Um, I'll just cite one passage. Ephesians 2.20 says the church was built on the, ch- on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Okay, so as we know in that metaphor, you only have one foundation in a building. The rest of the church has been built upon that foundation. How many buildings have multiple foundations? Well, they don't. You have one. And so that foundation has been laid. And what we'll show later is, again, the four criteria to being an apostle is something that no human being can have today. Let me just give them four real quickly. First of all, you had to be objectively called by Christ to be an apostle. That didn't mean you were sitting eating your Cheerios at breakfast and you thought, hey, you know, today being a car car salesman isn't working out. I think I'll become an apostle. Or I thought I heard as I was walking out to get the garbage can 
God was speaking to me and I should be an apostle. No, Jesus Christ personally intervened objectively in the lives of his apostles to call them. Was Paul's calling on the road to Damascus subjective or objective? It was objective by the resurrected Christ to intervene. Okay, and and the same you could say with all of his apostles. The second thing that is unique about the apostles, according to 1 Corinthians 9.1, is that they were all eyewitnesses of the resurrection. Can anyone claim today to be an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that we saw him bodily raised? No. Remember, even Paul said he saw it as one who was untimely born. It was later. Third is they did miraculous deeds. The apostles, if their handkerchiefs were carried to a person who was sick, they were healed. These men batted a thousand. If their shadow would come upon someone who was ill, they would be healed. Why? To demonstrate that they were the authoritative spokesman for Jesus Christ. This is the point that the writer of Hebrews makes, that God was testifying through the apostles through miraculous signs and wonders. Okay, fourth thing that they did was that they were personally instructed by Christ for three years. Remember in Acts 1, when they're choosing the replacement, who ends up being Matthias for Judas, Peter says, and I think it's the divine necessity that it was necessary that whoever would replace Judas had to go and be with Christ and the disciples from the beginning of Christ's baptism until the time that he was taken up from them. And so what time period was that? It was three years. Look in Galatians chapter 1. How long was the Apostle Paul instructed by Christ in Arabia? It was for three years. Okay, can any person claim to be personally instructed by Christ today? No. So for those reasons, we don't have modern-day apostles or prophets. And we'll come to that again. The third, fourth thing is continuationism. And I would like to, if you're a note-taker, have you add to this forced continuationism. And what I mean by that is not that we don't have gifts today. Every single believer, in some sense, is a continuationist, not a secessionist. We do believe that the church still has gifts. The issue is what kind of gifts. And again, they're claiming that the gift of apostle and prophet is still with us. But they also, the reason I call it forced continuationism, is they want to force, in an extra-biblical way, the gifts of the Spirit, like speaking in tongues. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'll I'll give you an example from my own experience. When I was involved with the Word of Faith movement, I remember going, being brought into a room at the Word of Faith Church, I'm sorry, a Living Word Church up in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota, and they told me to start speaking and it'll come out. Well, I remember later I thought of the 1 Corinthians 14, 28, where if you're going to speak in tongues in public in the assembly, which many of them are doing, you're to have an interpreter. Does that matter to any of them? I don't see it. I don't see where typically you'll have someone speaking tongues and you also have an interpreter. That was not done, at least in my experience. And I think the same thing happens in the New Apostolic Reformation movement. By the way, under this forced continuationism and living by the Spirit, the idea is that if you have doctrine, you're dry and you're quenching the Spirit. So if you believe in knowing God rationally through the Bible, you're actually accused of quenching the Spirit. We had someone recently leave our church making that very accusation. So if you teach what the Bible says, which is given to you by the Spirit, then you're accused of quenching the Spirit. Okay, that's how sick I think this movement is. I think that's a very telling point. The fifth thing here is pragmatism. Oh, I'm sorry, experientialism. 
And experientialism is the idea that we can have extra biblical communication despite the clear teaching of Scripture. So when you have a modern-day prophet who comes and says, hey, I'm speaking for the Lord, and I know this from the experience that I've had, well, if we take the grid that we're given in Scripture to test the prophet, for example, Deuteronomy 13, verses 1 through 3, remember there, if a prophet says something that comes to pass, they actually predict the future, but they teach a different doctrine that leads people away from the true God of the Bible... They're a false prophet. So when is the last time when someone says, Thus saith the Lord, they're being tested in that way? So what I'm going to show you today is when it comes to post-millennialism, post-millennialism is a different gospel. Now, why is it a different gospel? Because the gospel, the good news, is about the person and work of Christ. And let me ask a question. Is it okay to distort what Jesus did at his first coming? Well, certainly we would say no. Well, then why is it okay to distort what he's going to do at his second coming? The person and work of Jesus Christ is the good news. And what I'm claiming is that if anyone would teach a different gospel, we're to stand against it. We're to judge people according to the doctrines they teach. That's why we have the scriptures. The objective standard is the instrument panel of the scriptures. Think about Deuteronomy 18. How many false prophets, and I don't care if it's the Latter Rain Movement, New Apostolic Reformation Movement, Pentecostal, Charismatic, I don't care who it is. If someone says, thus saith the Lord, and they make a prediction, according to Deuteronomy 18, if that prediction does not come about, they're a false prophet. So if they fail either the doctrinal test or it doesn't come about test, they're not to be listened to. And so what's interesting is we hear in our society today, and by the way, a lot of people politically would agree with us and be on our side, but a lot of them I hear saying very cavalierly, I heard the Lord telling me. And the Lord said this, and the Lord said this. And I'm thinking, okay, where is that in the scriptures? And we know you're not a modern-day apostle and prophet, and therefore you're a $3 bill. They've made themselves into false prophets. That's the problem with experientialism. The final one is pragmatism. The reason this movement feels warranted primarily, I think, is that they're growing. How many times do you have movements that say we must be right because we are many? We have the Roman Catholic Church that's done that for many years. The New Apostolic Reformation movement does the same. It's very interesting. In the book of Revelation, you know, there's not one church that's ever rebuked for being small, but they are rebuked for not being faithful. That's what we're called to be, is faithful. Not even successful. And what I mean by successful is God is the one who succeeds. He calls us for our role providentially. He uses us as he sees fit. So whether you bring one person to conversion, or whether you're Jeremiah, the prophet who's thrown into the cistern, or you're Isaiah, or you're Joe Smith from Crystal, Minnesota... God providentially is going to use his people to bring about his kingdom on his timing, not on the timing of humanity. Now, with that, I'm going to just use, again, these six categories to refute each of them. We're going to start with post-millennialism, but I want to hand it to Bob. And, Bob, I was wondering if you could comment again on this idea of Christian perfectionism that happens to the church and how that relates to this post-millennial idea. 
1679. Okay, so Jane Lead from 1679. Until there be such a church made ready upon the earth, so holy, so Catholic, and so anointed, that it is without all spot or wrinkle, and that is adorned as a bride to meet her bridegroom, Christ will not personally descend to solemnize this marriage and present the same to his father. Wow. Now, the reason Jane lead from the 17th century is important is that when I did my research on this over 15 years ago, that's where some of them, I believe, later people actually would look favorably upon Lee because her writings have been transcribed onto the Internet in the old English in which they were written word by word by word, including different spellings of her name. But then the same ideas show up later, and that's where we want to yeah. cite this. Um, the, article, the issue is issue 103 where I... I, I don't know how I got all this done, but it got done. <laughs> a lot of writing at, at airports, right, Bob? Yeah. yeah, actually, one time I was stuck in the airport for six hours when we were trying to get to Barbados, and I was writing this article. Hmm. So that meant that happened in 2007. Um, so it comes back with the fivefold ministry elitism. Um, uh, this, that's in the 20th century here in America. There's a guy named Myland, and then George Houghton, George Warnock. I'll, I'll go forward to Warnock, who made the same claim. Warnock did this. Um, he wrote a book in 1951 called The Feast of Tabernacles. By the way, the seasons and rains in Israel are allegorized in order to create this scenario. Hmm. Uh, so there's going to be this latter rain would be... A, you know, just an allegory of the seasons in Israel. So here's the latter rain, Warnock. Um, he says this, Christ is going to remain right where he is at God's right hand until there, be, there shall arise a group of overcomers who shall conquer over all God's enemies. And then I have some ellipses. Yet the majority of Christians are looking for a rapture at any moment when Christ is supposed to catch away a miserable, defeated, disease-ridden church. Wow. And so we shouldn't expect God to come, according to lead in the 17th century, because we're not perfected. Wow. Uh, according to Warnock, 51... We, if we're sick, we got problems, we're not perfected, God, Christ doesn't want us. And then it goes on, and um, William Branham, should I keep Yeah, yeah, okay. St. William Branham. William Branham is more uh, salient to me because he died in 1965, and he wasn't super old, but he was considered the prime person who got these things happening. They claimed the more miracles happened at his meetings and what have you than any of the others. So um, Branham claimed to have a personal angel who taught him and gave him revelations. He claimed that this angel told him that he was the Elijah who would come before the return of Christ. 
He also claimed to be the messenger of the Laodicean church. Many believe that the churches in Revelation are stages of church history. Now, in in Lee's case, she had the Philadelphian Society. And the reason for that was the church in Philadelphia wasn't rebuked for anything. So she saw in the Philadelphia church the society of perfected saints that would arise. And she, it's really, really crazy (laughs) stuff. Now, the link, the tie between all of these, going back to Warnock, Branham, and so on, is Bill Hammond, who ends up being the key person. Bill Hammond is someone who worked with Branham. By the way, Branham believed in Jesus only, so he denied the Trinity. And he's buried under a pyramid. His memory is still uh, like a shrine to many people. And when I came to Bible college, I became a Christian through the witness of Pentecostals in 1971. They had turned from, for the most part, from all of the uh, grand claims and miracle meetings and so on and gone to Bible scholarship because of the damage that had been done by William Branham. And they had lost a huge amount of their ordained pastors to that oneness Pentecostalism and other versions of this, uh, what was called the latter reign. So Bill Hammond is still alive. He was born in 1934. He's been part of all of this, including the later C. Peter Wagner version. And he was at the meetings where they got together, C. Peter Wagner, who's now deceased, and so on. And here's um, Hammond, Bill Hammond, still around. Here's his teaching. The whole creation is waiting for the last generation church. The earth and all of the creation are waiting for the manifestation of God's last day apostles and prophets and a fully restored church. And then he cites Romans 8, 19, uh, for the earnest expectation, the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Now, we've talked about that lately. He's not looking for the resurrection. Right. He's looking for sinners saved by grace. And with his doctrine, who knows who's saved? Because I don't know how much Christ some of them believe, because they're not concerned whether it's Trinitarian, Jesus only, or what. And so this revealing or manifestation of the sons of God has to happen in history first. All right? Um, When the church is fully restored, then the saints will receive their final redemption, the immortalization of their mortal body. So that has to happen. Now, here's another thing from Hammond that you may have run into. Hammond includes, this is what I wrote about, the new breed. If you, they have a doctrine called the new breed of man. And there's only one kind of man, or two really. One is those in Adam who aren't redeemed, and the other is those in Adam who are redeemed. Amen. The, the, those who are in Christ. All right. So the new breed. Here's a quote from Hammond, and this brings in all of the buzzwords of this movement. Quote Bill Hammond, the new breed of Joshua generation apostles will move in the miraculous and and definitely manifest the signs of the apostle. Now the Joshua generation, this is my analysis of that, is another allegory. 
The Joshua generation is based on the allegory that Joshua going in to take to land is an allegory of the church progressively defeating God's enemies now. Yeah. And so th that's part of it. So he said the new breed of Joshua generation. This affects me personally because people that I was in the ministry with in the 70s when we were in this uh, community that I found out later was based on the more on the teachings of Finney and his perfectionism, but we were part of the um, uh, Fort Lauderdale Five movement, uh, New Wine magazine. Anyhow, somebody said, oh, I'm going down to Kansas City. They have this new teaching, the new breed of man. You got to hear it. Uh -oh. <laughs> what? This is the early 80s. Okay, so this, they're going to take the land. They're going to be perfected. And then Hammond says, let it suffice to say that the new breed of apostles will be motivated by the spirit of wisdom. Now, that is a citation of Isaiah 11.2, which is a messianic prophecy. Okay, the bottom line. So we have Branham, we have Hammond, before that Warnock, there's other people involved, and it goes, it goes on like that. So the restoration must happen, must happen, they claim, through this Elijah company. That's another one of their heresies. The Elijah that will come, which we see, read about in the Bible, which happens during the Daniel's 70th week, is going to be a, an entire company of prophets, an Elijah company, Joshua generation, new breed of man, many-membered man's child, anything you the virgin church betrothed to Christ before the resurrection, and they are going to defeat all God's enemies. And, per, and when this perfected church is there, then they can welcome Jesus back. Yes, that's it. Yep. And that is no hyperbole. I researched this copiously, had piles of books, went through. That's exactly what they claim. Now, this article was republished in Israel in five different languages. Wow. A pastor called me and said, um, I'm a pastor from New York who's a missionary in Israel, and this, they are bringing busloads of people into Israel saying that we're going to bring these prophets and apostles, and we're going to, Antichrist will show up and we'll defeat him. Hmm. And so I, we've heard from people that found that article and found the truth, so I thank God for that. Bob, thank you. This okay. is very helpful to see this idea of this restored and perfected church that comes by the work of the Spirit. Really, there's a second blessing in Mass that occurs, and it's going to bring this perfected church about, and Christ cannot come back until this perfected, restored church happens. What I want to do is show you some of the verses that are distorted. One is by Jane Lead that Bob has just mentioned, who's really the forerunner to this whole movement back from the 17th century. Let me show you a quote. I'm going to show you the passage that she's distorting from Revelation 12. I want to help you interpret Revelation 12. So I'm going to show you the interpretation of Revelation 12 is not open to our imagination, but rather it's an appeal to Scripture, and it's very clear. It's not magical how we come up with the right meaning of this. So let's first of all look at Jane Lees. Remember, she's the 17th century mystic who is the forerunner of the new apostolic reformation movement. And what she's doing is she's distorting Revelation 12. She claims that the virgin 
And Revelation 12.5 will be a future established church that will give birth to the Son in Revelation 12.5. In fact, listen to what she says. She says, The birth of this virgin church was visionally typified, meaning you have to read into it, uh, by St. John, by the great wonder in heaven, bringing forth her firstborn, that was caught up to the throne of God. For as a virgin woman brought forth Christ after the flesh, so likewise a virgin woman is designed by God to bring forth the firstborn after the Spirit, who shall be filled by the Holy Ghost and with power. So stop there. Notice, first of all, she's talking about the church as a virgin. The term virgin is never used in Revelation chapter 12. The term for virgin, parthenos in Greek, is never used. The term gune is for woman. Okay, so she's reading into the text right away. And this woman, who you're going to find out is actually Israel in Revelation chapter 12, she's claiming is the church. So she's replacing the woman Israel with the church, and this church is going to be spotless. It's the restored and perfected church that Bob is telling us about. And as soon as it becomes perfected, then the Son, which is the Messiah, will come. That's how she's allegorizing Revelation chapter 12. Let me continue. She says, The virgin that is hereto designed must be pure in spirit, so also of a clarified body, and all over impregnated with the Holy Ghost. Stop there. Notice she's claiming that this future restored church is going to be impregnated by the Holy Ghost. That's a second blessing in Mass. That you and I, a bunch of dunderheads who stand against the second blessing, saying that we have all we need by Christ when we were deposited in the sphere of the Spirit. Um, I went through this list not long ago, a few weeks ago. Remember, in Ephesians 1.4, how many spiritual gifts are we lacking? None. 1 Corinthians 1.7, how many spiritual gifts are we lacking? None. How many, by the way, good works are we equipped for by the Spirit? All of them. 2 Timothy 3.17. So notice the lie that we're waiting for some super church that's going to come about at the end through a second blessing in Mass. It goes on to say that this church so brought forth and signed with the mark of the divine name, shall be adorned with miraculous gifts and powers beyond whatever has been seen yet. Again, that's the claim at the end. Now, let's look at the text that she's abusing. She's abusing Revelation 12.5, but it begins this prophecy in Revelation chapter 12, verse 1, where we have to define our terms. So let's read what John wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. He said, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. So, let me pull up my pointer. What is Jane Lee doing? The first, in a sense, of the New Apostolic Reformation movement all the way back to the 17th century. Well, she's claiming that this woman is not Israel, but a restored church that's perfected by a a second blessing in Mass of the Spirit. Now, what is the woman actually? It's Israel. How do we know that? It's not because Eric Dalma prefers the woman being Israel, but clearly it's a reference to Israel because the woman and the sun, the moon and the 12 stars, is a direct reference to Genesis 37, 9 through 11, a dream that Joseph had. Turn your Bibles to that passage. Again, as you're turning to Genesis 37, 9 through 11, what I want you to see is that when it comes to the symbols in the book of Revelation, it's very simple. John either tells you what the symbol is 
or he alludes to the Old Testament that tells you what it is. So this is not, and I'll say it again, it is not the apocalyptic literature, for example, that the Essenes put out in the intertestamental period where they had symbols that you could read anything you wanted into them. That's the the heresy that I see even today from post-millennialists who will say, well, we can read into the book of Revelation anything we want. In fact, I've seen the denigration of the book of Revelation by modern-day post-millennialists who will say, well, why should we take our doctrine from Revelation? After all, it's a book of symbols. Well, right? Well, the problem with that is John lets us know exactly what the symbols are. So here's a, as you turn to Genesis 37, Joseph is having a dream. Verses 9 through 11, it says, Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Now stop there. Who are the, let's start with the stars. Who are the 11 other stars, do you think? The sons of Exactly. There's his brothers, right? So he's the 12th one. Okay, well, who do you think the sun and the moon would be if the 11 stars are the children? They're the parents. So you have Jacob and Rachel. Now, am I reading into that? Well, no, because we know from verse 10. Keep going in verse 10. It says, this is Joseph. He related this dream to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, so this is Jacob now, Israel, rebuking Joseph. He says, what is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? Hello! (laughs) The sun, the moon is Jacob and Rachel, and the stars are Israel. So now, let's go back to Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. What John sees in this vision is a woman, and it's clothed with the sun and the moon, and under her feet and on her head are the crown of 12 stars. The idea is that the woman is clothed with Israel. Right? Jacob, Rachel, and the 12 tribes. So certainly this woman is a reference to Israel. And what you'll find, I don't have it all on the screen here, but when you get to Revelation 12:5, this woman, Israel, gives birth to a son, which is the Messiah. And what John shows you are huge swaths of time in which, first of all, she depicts the son as being caught up before, the, before Satan can destroy him. He's caught up to the throne, which is the ascension. But then he skips forward to this future time of Jacob's great distress where Israel, the woman, is going to be preserved in the wilderness. This is going to happen in the last seven years, in fact, the last three and a half, where she will be preserved for 1,260 days. Okay, remember, that's the final exodus. And that's ironically when the next Elijah and Moses, remember the two witnesses in Revelation 11? That's when they come about. It's in the last part of the 70th week of Daniel. And so that's what's being prophesied about is, yes, Israel is going to be protected during that time period. So what Jane Lead is doing and the New Apostolic Reformation Movement is doing is deliberately distorting who the woman is. No, the woman is not a perfected church. It's Israel. Not the perfected church that brings the kingdom, but Israel, ironically, that's protected sovereignly by God's power alone for the last three and a half years. In fact, had they not been... How many know that the first exodus was God's doing? Did the Israelites say, let's start 
bringing the water. You start shoveling some water that way and I'll do it that way and we're going to kind of build this. No, God did it. He's the one who parted the Red Sea. In the same way, he's the one who provided for them their manna. He's the one who sustained them. The same thing is going to happen again at the end. And that again, if you a passage to look up is Jeremiah 30 verse 7 that talks about this time of Jacob's great distress. But Jacob, it says, will be saved from it. That's what's being referred to here, but it's being distorted by the new apostolic reformation movement. Bob had mentioned this latter rain movement. And the latter rain movement, which stemmed from Pentecostalism, really was teaching that the apostolic power would one day be restored and the church would be restored really under a second blessing doctrine en masse and that this restored church would one day establish a kingdom on the earth, as it were. And it doesn't matter what variety you look at it, but then only then can Christ return. Contrast that with what the Bible teaches, where things are going to get much worse in this 70th week of Daniel, and Christ has taken us out prior to it. Because, in fact, the 70th week of Daniel is the wrath of God. Okay, now... Let me mention again George Warnock. Bob had mentioned him. He wrote the Feast of Tabernacles, as Bob said, in 1951. And again, he taught that the church would be made powerful and bring a restoration to the planet. That's the post-millennial idea that you and I want to refute. In fact, let me quote from Warnock. This is Bob's article. I hope that everyone can have an opportunity in reading Bob's great critical issues commentary uh, article on this. This comes right from it. This is Warnock. Warnock says this, again, 1951, says, quote, Christ is going to remain right where he is at God's right hand until there shall rise a group of overcomers who shall conquer over all of God's enemies. And he goes on to say, and yet the majority of Christians, this is us now, are looking for a rapture any moment when Christ is supposed to catch away a miserable, defeated, disease-ridden church, unquote. Notice the mockery of those who believe in biblical eschatology. If you believe what the Bible says, what does he describe you as? Defeated, disease-ridden church. That's why the second blessing doctrine is nothing to toy with. Because in the second blessing doctrine, no, no matter if it's with individuals or in mass, you have two groups of Christians. You have the spirit filled, and then the rest of us dunderheads who are holding the progress of the Christian kingdom back. Is that what's depicted in the scriptures? Remember what spawned a lot of this discussion was 1 Corinthians 12, 13, where Paul made it very clear that out of the diversity of the many gifts given by the Spirit, you have one church. Remember, we were baptized in the sphere of one spirit. We were placed in one body, and we were made to drink of what drink? How many drinks? One drink. One was emphasized three times in that text for what? the idea of our unity, that you don't have one set of Christians, the super spiritual, the second set is a bunch of dunderheads holding back the progress of the kingdom. No, there's one group. And so that's why post-millennialism is really so evil, is it distorts the work of Christ, that no, you and I have to bring about the kingdom, not God. Let's um, talk about how post-millennialism in any form is bad. That's what I want to do, is I want to refute post-millennialism. Let me read to you the bullet point here. In this view of post-millennialism, the earth becomes Christianized by human works and is therefore a better place to live. Notice the last phrase, a better place to live prior to Christ's coming. I'll show you that that's not true. That before Christ returns, the, the world is going to become much worse. 
But listen to see Peter Wagner, the really the grandfather of the new apostolic reformation movement. He says, quote, the gospel will be preached to all nations. He says, I believe the world is going to get better. And he goes on to say, we believe that God has sent us to restore things. When that has happened enough, Jesus will return to a very strong world reflecting the kingdom of God. So notice C. Peter Wagner, the grandfather of New Apostolic Reformation Movement, says history is going to get better. Why? Because of this restored church. Well, let's contrast that with what the Bible says. And if there's one text that you want to use if you're sitting at a Perkins refuting the New Apostolic Reformation Movement and post-millennialism of any form, it's Matthew 24, 21 through 22. Let's look at that text. And this is Jesus talking about what happens in the 70th week of Daniel. And I'll prove that to you. So notice Jesus talking about that last seven years, the same time period of Jacob's great distress. Matthew 24, 21 through 22, Jesus says, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Let's stop there in verse 21. One thing I want you to come away with today from verse 21 of Matthew 24 is the simple idea that what Jesus is describing about is the worst time period ever. Now, why do I summarize it as the worst ever? Well, let's look at it. Notice he says there's going to be great tribulation, philipsis, such as not occurred since. Now, let's stop there. That means nothing has ever been this bad as far as tribulation. Are you with me? But he says, since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So not only is it the worst that has ever been, it's the worst that will ever be. So how many know that you have, I say this a little jokingly, but you can't have the worstest, right? Do you remember when you were a kid, you say, well, that's the worst, but that's the worstest. And you get corrected because you can only have one worst. You can go bad, 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 it's getting worse. But then at some point, you have the worst, Jesus is saying, this is the worst ever. It will never be that bad again, and it's never been that bad before. So in fact, how bad is it? Verse 22, he says, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Now, the only thing we have to argue about is what time period is Jesus referring to? Well, certainly he's referring to the 70th week of Daniel. How do I know that? Well, because six verses earlier in Matthew 24, 15, he's just talked about the abomination that causes desolation. Eight verses after this, Jesus talks about his return at the end of the 70th week. Are you with me? So obviously he's referring to the 70th week of Daniel. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you some of the worst arguments. Let me say it this way. They're the best arguments post-millennialists have, but they're distorting in the worst sense what this text is saying. Post-millennialists today that are not involved with the New Apostolic Reformation movement, but are involved with the Reform movement, they will claim that the worst time period ever that Jesus is describing is 70 A.D. That's the idea of preterism. Preterism says these things won't occur in the future, but they already occurred in 70 A.D. Well, 70 A.D. was bad. In fact, between 64 A.D. and 70 A.D., 1.1 million Jews died. That's bad. But let's ask ourselves, is it the worst time period ever? No. 
Well, you're exactly right, Rich. In Revelation chapter 9, it says that a third of the earth will one day be burned up. That is all of its trees. Did anyone mention that happening in history? How about a third in Revelation chapter 9? You also see, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 8, it's a third of the waters become blood on the entire earth. Has that ever happened? In Revelation chapter 6, verse 8, we lose a quarter of the earth's population, 25% due to sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. Has that ever happened? The worst warfare that we've ever had was World War II. We lost 3% of the earth's population. The wars that are depicted in the beginning phase of the 70th week of Daniel are eight times worse than World War II. Okay, so what I'm showing you is that 70 A.D. won't do. Was a third of the waters turned to blood in 70 A.D.? No. So whatever time period is being referred to here, it certainly hasn't happened yet. Jesus is describing something that will happen clearly in the 70th week of Daniel. And so what I'm going to talk about is this post-millennial equivocation, and I can't believe we probably won't even get through this. I wanted to open up, give you 10 minutes of discussion. So let's just try to go through the first one here. What I'm going to show you are four things that they equivocate on, because I want to do is I'm going to show you how you can sit at a Perkins and say, your post-millennial view cannot be right. And the core text you will use is Matthew 24, 21 through 22, but you have to be equipped with the equivocation that post-millennialists will engage in. What is equivocation? It's where we take the same term, but we use it in two different ways, or maybe three different ways, or multiple ways. Again, the example I like to use, if I say, put your jacket on, son, it's cool outside, and he says, that's okay, I'm a cool cat. He's using cool differently than I am. That's equivocation. Well, that's what the people in the post-millennial movement do. And again, I'm going to show you the Reformed version of it. The reason I'm going to show you is because if you can refute their version, you can refute any version. Post-millennialism is error. What they do with the last days, first of all, and by the way, I get this from Right Response Ministries. These are brothers in Christ, a man named Jeff Durbin. I really appreciate him. He goes out and witnesses. I see him on the, the street. I think as far as the initial work of Christ, he has it exactly right. Salvation is through faith alone and Christ alone. And so I want to give him kudos for that. But when it comes to the last days, they're committed post-millennialists. And what they do with the last days is they say that it's merely the end of the old covenant. So let me go down to the schematic here. Think of the schematic as, and by the way, this is not, this diagram that I have is not to scale. Um, This is the last seven years, the 70th week of Daniel, right? This is the midpoint. So obviously that seven years looks like it's a huge time frame on my time continuum. But This represents the last days. I'm sorry, the first advent to Christ, his work on the cross, the ascension. What they do with the last days is they try to claim that the last days end here in 70 AD. So the last days for them is the last of the old covenant, and then we're in the new covenant period. What you and I believe is that the last days go from the first advent of Christ all the way to his second advent the beginning of the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? Now, how do we know which is right? Well, here's where you're going to turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. I'm going to show you that we have to be right, that the last days go from the first coming of Christ to his second coming, that they're not just done with at 70 AD. Now, why do I say that? Well, because notice what Peter says, 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4. 
Remember, who is Peter dealing with? He's dealing with false teachers who claim that Christ was not coming again, that the apostles had the interpretation of the Old Testament wrong. Peter disproves that by saying, we were on the Mount of Transfiguration where we heard the, ver- the words from the glory on high saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Okay, and he knew that that was a reference to Deuteronomy 18.15, but also of Psalm 2, verse 7. Why is Psalm 2.7 important? Because it's about the Messiah reigning over the world. And so Peter said, hey, we had our interpretation authenticated at the Mount of Transfiguration that Christ has to come again. So that's who he's dealing with. But notice he warns us. He says, know this first of all. This is 2 Peter 3, verses 3 through 4. Know this first of all, that in the last days... Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Stop there. The term coming there is parousia. Never is it used for the first advent of Christ. It is always used for his second advent. I'll prove that to you in just a moment. He says, for ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So notice for Peter, there are mockers in the last days, that's this time period then, that are saying we don't believe the 70th week will ever come about. That is Christ parousia. How do we know that? Because Second Thessalonians, how do we know the parousia, by the way, real quickly, is this entire seven years? Because Paul says that Christ destroys the Antichrist at the appearance of his parousia. That happens at the end. But the parousia, the rapture, happens like a thief according to Matthew 24, 37. The parousia is a complex event. It's not a one-day deal. It's a seven-year program. Christ comes for the church. At the end, he comes with the church. Okay? But the idea is that in these last days, there's going to be scoffers saying, where is his parousia? Where is his coming? Now, how do we know that parousia is reserved for the second coming? Let me cite to you the theological dictionary of the New Testament. Probably, Bob, would you say, this is probably the magnum opus of all theological dictionaries that probably mankind is it's considered that right and ironically bob and i pointed this out a lot of these writers wouldn't believe as we do they're not dispensationalist or i'm not claiming to be a mighty dispensationalist or anything but i'm what i'm claiming is that they don't have the same theological worldview per se that we do all right listen to them this is theological dictionary of the new testament they say primitive christianity waits for the jesus who has come already as the one who is still to come. This is the theological dictionary of the New Testament. They go on to say, the hope of an imminent coming of the exalted Lord in messianic glory is, however, so much to the forefront in the New Testament that the term parousia is never used for the first coming of Christ in the flesh, unquote. Why? Because you get the two confused. That's exactly right. So what this means then in 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4 is that the last days is going to be characterized by people who say, we don't think Jesus is coming again. Now, are we dealing with that today, or was that relegated to 70 AD? No, he's talking about this entire time period. So from 2 Peter 3, 3-4, we can conclude that the last days is this entire inner advent era between the first and the second advent of Christ. Okay, so right away we see that their timeline is wrong. Let me give you one more. They claim the end of the age. Remember, Jesus answers the question the disciples ask, Matthew 24, 3, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Well, the end of the age 
they claim happened in 70 A.D. It happens at the end of the Old Covenant. Why would 70 A.D. be for the post-millennialists the end of the Old Covenant period? Because the temple's destroyed, and they can't go back to it. All right, now, how do we refute that? Well, I think we refute that the same way we refute the idea that things are going to get better. Let's think about the end of the age. The end of the age is going to come when Christ returns. In Matthew 24, 21 through 22, Jesus describes the end of the age as being the worst time period ever. And again, what you have to do is you have to sit down at the Perkins and say, open up to Revelation 8, 7. I'll read them off to you. Revelation 8, 7 says a third of the earth burns up. And ask them, when in 70 AD did a third of the earth burn up? You show me. Show me the historian that mentions a third of the earth burned up or I won't listen to you. Revelation 8, 8, a third of the earth's waters turned to blood. Ask them, show me where a third of the waters turned to blood in 70 AD. Revelation 8, 9, a third of all ships were destroyed on the seas. When in 70 AD did a third of all earth's ships were destroyed? When did that happen? Who noted? You think that maybe a a historian or two would have mentioned that. Revelation 9.18, a third of mankind dies. Before that, Revelation 9.1, the abyss releases the demonic horde. The demons are released again. Did that all happen in 70 AD? No, that happened, or I should say will happen, in the 70th week of Daniel. That's why Jesus is warning that unless those deeds be cut short, no flesh would survive. That is not 70 AD. And therefore, the end of the age is not 70 A.D. and the destruction of the temple, but it is Jesus Christ who returns bodily because unless he did, all of humanity would be wiped out. That's the idea. So that's what you have to show them, I think, at the Perkins. By the way, one thing I want to point out, I'll just cite these three verses. You don't have to turn to them. But write down Galatians 1.4, Ephesians 1.21, and Hebrews 6.5. It's uh, Galatians 1.4, Ephesians 1.21, and Hebrews 6.5. In each of those passages, they show a two-age scheme, the present age and the age to come. In fact, I'll just read to you. This is Ephesians 1.21, where Paul says, Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and in every name, he's talking about Christ, that is named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Well, wait a minute. If you're a preterist or a post-millennialist, you are in that age already. Why? Because that age, the old age ended in 70 AD, and you're now in the new age. But Paul is saying that we're in this evil age, and then there's an age to come. What is he talking about? He's talking about how we have the last days will be ushered in by the appearance of Christ and his established kingdom. Think of it this way, very clearly, the first advent is the inauguration of the messianic age, but it is not the consummation. The old age is still hanging on. But when you get to the second advent of Christ, the old age is done away with completely, and you have the consummation of the messianic age. First coming, the inauguration of the messianic age, the old age is still hanging on. Through the second coming, you have the consummation of the messianic age. That's how the New Testament writers understood it. This seven-year period, by the way, is the labor pains. I'll show you next time. Labor pains are used 
by Paul. They're used by Isaiah, Isaiah 13, 8, Jesus, Matthew 24, 8, the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. Because after those labor pains, what will be birthed is the Messianic kingdom. That's the idea. And so there's two ages. The end of the old age is not in 70 AD, brothers and sisters. Is that clear? So again, we're taking the best arguments that post-millennials have. Okay, I'm sorry, with a few minutes left, let me go to some questions and we'll close. Brian. This uh, 2 Peter 3, 3 through 4, which we just did. Yes. uh, The mockers and scoffers. These, if if you just read this, which I've done hundreds of times, it gets a little glossed over, but these are actually false teachers within the church. The mockers and the scoffers are in the church. They're not talking about atheists. They're not talking about unbelievers. They're talking about people within the church or the the, the big umbrella church. That are claiming to be right, to exactly that. right. In other words, they're infecting the church. That's what Paul was warning about yeah. from your own ranks come the, the... Yes, I'm sorry. Go ahead, yeah. Rich. Okay, real briefly, I'm seeing a parallel between the Democrat Party and these new people who are trying to build paradise on earth. These super Christians are building it utopia on church. They're getting things ready for Christ to come. The Democrats are building their progressive um, society through their, you know, through their perfect utopia. Exactly. There's a parallel there. And guess where that comes from? The fall, the participation with God. It goes right to the fall, whether you're a Democrat That's right. or a new super-duper Christian. It's the same, same. Absolutely, Rich. In fact, that was my point on this slide, was that emergent brings us to Hegel and Marx. Dominion theology brings us to post-millennialism. Yeah. But in either way, humans bring the kingdom, not Christ. It's the same. Yes, Luann. I'm sorry, and I'll come to you, Jessica. And then we had one more hand, too. I just wanted three quick things. One of them, it does seem like they have a real problem with Deuteronomy 29.29, the revealed will of God versus the providential will of God. They don't like what Scripture actually says. They want their experience to drive the train. The other thing I wanted to mention, too, is um, 1 Peter 4 talks about Christ's suffering in the flesh and how we should have the same attitude. And the result of that is we spend the rest of our time on earth concerned about the will of God and not human desires. Amen. And then the last thing is, and you can maybe you know talk about it next week, but when you mentioned the, um, uh, the criteria for an apostle yes. in Matthew 17, and this would be just to clarify for people listening, it does talk about the apostles who could not heal that, that individual, yes. and Jesus responded to that, and maybe you know when you have more time, just for the people listening, you can explain the demon, that. Yes, the demon, that's also in Mark 9, and what the, the, the problem was they were relying upon their power, not God's, and that's why he says these only come out by prayer. Exactly right. So it's not the power in and of themselves. It's the power through Christ. Yes. And I'm sorry, Scott, and then I'll come to Jessica. Oh, I'm sorry. We're over here. Ron. I mentioned to you last week, but I can't help but say how much of all of this goes to Rome. Yes. And how the Catholic Church is so uh, embedded in all of this. Absolutely. And, and all the mysticism that is at both ends of that spectrum. Yes. Everybody's into Catholic mysticism. It doesn't matter what end you're at. It's, well said, Ron. You there. know what? You're right. They have their own version of apostles who speaks ex cathedra, naming the, namely the Pope. When he speaks ex cathedra, he's speaking for God himself. He's a, like an apostle. Ironically, the preterism that I'm mentioning, all these things happening in 70 A.D., Ironically, Jeff Durbin and these other people who claim to be Reformed hold to it. Preterism was actually initiated by the Roman Catholic Church. And it was done so because the Reformers kept saying, your Pope is the Antichrist. 
So to divorce themselves from that, they said, well, the, the Catholic theologians started saying, okay, this isn't something that happens in history. It all happened in 70 A.D. Therefore, our pope isn't the Antichrist. The reformers were historists. In other words, they were also distorting the book of Revelation, saying it's not in the future, it happens through history. And so every time they would get into a debate with the Catholic Church, the Pope ends up being the Antichrist. Okay, so the Roman Catholic doctrine is to say, you know, all these things happened in 70 AD. So why are those who are claiming to be Reformed going back to a Roman Catholic doctrine of preterism? It's, it's, a, it's a mystery to me. I'm sorry, and we got Scott, and then we'll come to you, Jessica, and we'll close. Um, so... The picture that's painted for me, anyway, um, is that, uh, okay, so after the rapture, many will get saved, and they'll be going through the tribulation. Um, and so they miss the rapture, basically. Yep. Um, but anyway, so their persecution during the, the, uh, during the tribulation may be by the agency of these dominionists. <laughs> yeah, I don't... I, yeah, I, They'd I, be in line with the Antichrist, and then later they'll probably be destroyed by the Antichrist. <laughs> yeah, again, you know, what we know is that there are going to be people who come to faith during the 70th week, and they will be persecuted. And those are the ones who are specified as being raised in Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, who are beheaded because of their faith in Christ. Yes, Jessica... So this first slide you had that has emergent on one end, biblical in the middle, and dominion on the right. Yes. Well, um, thinking back what Rich said, and actually we recorded CIC on this just last week where we were talking about how, in its own way, the new apostolic reformation is just another form of theological liberalism. Yeah, it is. So keeping that in mind, you have emergent on the one end saying they had an eschatology of hope. Yes. And you've got dominion on the other end with its own little reformed branch in there. Sure. And in, in their own words, they are saying, we hold to an eschatology of hope. Yes. Hope in what? Right. Hope in Christ? No, we have hope in Christ. Amen. They have hope in the works of man. Well said. Exactly right. And, and just to clarify, the reason I put this on the right for the dominion theology is simply because I'm thinking of men like Dutch Sheets on, on stage with Marjorie Taylor Greene. And I love Marjorie Taylor Greene. I think she's, I would vote for her. What I'm saying, though, is we don't need false theology. And so that's the only reason I put that here. What I'm warning about is that let's, let's have solid, you know, theology. We don't need to distort godly, good theology that comes from the Bible to reject Marxism. We don't need it. We can refute that and hold to the truth of the scripture. So thank you for ending on that. Very good. Thanks everyone. And we'll come to this again next time when we look into this. Let's, let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly father, we thank you for our time together. We do pray Lord that perhaps in the future you give us opportunity to help witness to those who may be affected and infected with this movement. We pray Lord that you would bring many people out of it and to the truth of what the scriptures teach. I pray for Bob as he teaches us in first Corinthians, Lord, I pray heavenly father that we would listen and hear that we'd be not just hearers but doers of the word, that we'd be transformed by the renewing of our mind through the scriptures. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.